Salufalava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. He says exactly what's on his mind. And you know, sometimes people find that engaging. In a leaked letter, outgoing FSM president slams China. Why did he do it? Also, though the numbers may seem high, this is just the tip of the iceberg that we are seeing. Violence against women and girls are the most underreported of crimes. Violence against women in Fiji remains largely underreported. And later on... You know the saying goes, nothing about us without us. As climate change forces more Pacific communities to relocate, some are choosing to stay. A Guamanian academic and former congressional delegate says the explosive letter penned by the outgoing presidents of the Federated States of Micronesia is a byproduct of the heightened geopolitical tensions between the United States and China. In the letter, David Panuelo calls for a diplomatic switch to Taiwan and accuses China of making threats against him and of deploying tools of statecraft to destabilize FSM. A statement by Ambassador Huang Sheng, released through the Chinese embassy in FSM, said remarks in the letter were a clear misrepresentation of facts and slander. Kuroi Hawkins speaks with Robert Underwood, President Emeritus of the University of Guam, and the Territory's former congressional delegates in the U.S. House of Representatives about the significance of the letter and the timing of its release. Uh, well, first of all, the letter, uh, they call it the leaked letter, but when you write a letter to that many people, it's not leaked. You, meant, you mean it to be... Uh, you mean it for lots of people to read, and so it's had the desired effect. It, uh, at one level, it's entirely consistent with uh, President Panuelo's uh, general approach to things, which is uh, he can be frank, he can be uh, a little bit um, take a, a loud approach to things, and uh, sometimes uh, what uh, he says exactly what's on his mind. And you know, sometimes people find that engaging. Other times people find it distracting. And uh, on this occasion, I think it's going to be a little bit disruptive. But maybe for, uh, uh, you know, there's some rationale behind it. But uh, it, it it is a remarkable statement uh, for a uh, national leader uh, to make those points. Of course, he's doing it on his way out. If he was doing it on his way in, uh, then it might carry more weight. Because it it tends to be wrapped up in the the sense that uh, he's unhappy with uh, his uh, electoral uh, demise, and as a result of that, he's kind of deading uh, his frustration. Um, we've had a response from um, the People's Republic of China, um, the ambassador in FSM, calling uh, the claims slanderous and saying that they will oppose outright any move from the FSM to engage with Taiwan. Um, um, it was quite a strong, strong statement that that response from China um, expected in in your view, and even probably the if you could comment on the sort of it seems denial of a sovereign state's uh, foreign policy um, <laughs> independence and decisions. Well, yeah, obviously, uh, for China to make that strong statement, uh, it's it's obviously uh, a source of concern to them. And I'm sure that in the scheme of things that, uh, you know, the Chinese foreign ministry and the general um, presentation of China overseas, they have a series of objectives to meet. And uh, one of them is uh, has always been continually to continue to delimit the, the role of uh, Taiwan uh, in, in international affairs. And, uh, of course, 
of the three freely associated states. Only the FSM recognizes uh, uh, the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, and, and the way that it's framed that he is thinking of moving to uh, Taiwan again, he's in no position to carry this out. So, but, but just, just saying it and then saying it almost as a matter of, uh, you know, transaction. You give me some money and we'll do it. Uh, that's not, that, you know, even uh, in the most transparent way of dealing with foreign policy, uh, it just doesn't strike me as the way to conduct it because it really speaks, you're, you're really supposed to be speaking to your values and your commitment to certain international principles. And getting more money from one side than the other is not an enduring principle, although it's influential. Obviously, as you said, um, Panuela, on the way out, um, uh, Peter and Christian returning to, to the helm, a um, uh, bit of a, I guess, as you say, distraction as he comes into power. How, how do you think, what are his options, I guess, is my question coming into this. Well, uh, 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 well, Peter, as I understand it, Peter Christian obviously took the, the four-year seat for Pompey, but the FSM still has to vote on who's going to be the next, the FSM Congress still has to vote on who's going to be the next president. So as Panuelo is going out, the interesting thing is that the compact is coming in. <laughs> so the compact money is one of the the, the fact that uh, it's 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 pretty much uh, uh, a rumor that there's an enormous amount of money that's on the table that's a result of the negotiations with the U.S. So that's another uh, influence and in, uh, in in this in this conversation because the tenor of the the conversation about China is going to be influenced has to be influenced if if we're just thinking transactionally about money has to be influenced by the fact that the enormous uh, growth of uh, compact assistance that will emerge out, out of the compact negotiations and is now being presented by the Biden administration to the U.S. Congress. How do you think the U.S. and allies um, will react to this? Well, some might uh, be reacting to it gleefully because it confounds uh, what China uh, is uh, is doing. So, uh, and so, to that extent, uh, maybe there's some concern by uh, that uh, this is really motivated, not out of a sense of gratitude, but influenced by the fact that U.S. assistance is uh, increasing. Now, I don't want to discount the fact that uh, some of the charges that uh, that President Panuelo is making have a factual base. I mean, there is uh, there are uh, forces that are are pulling the FSM apart. There's a secessionist movement inside Chuuk. Uh, there's a Yap independence. There's a Pompeii independence movement. And it is rumored that some of this, of course, is fed by uh, Chinese agents. But, you know, those those movements have been around a while. And so I'm not sure that that's the case, that, you know, that there's a direct correlation between uh, uh, those, those uh, 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 disruptive forces and Chinese influence. But I would say that China's probably not trying to help keep the country together. The coordinator for Fiji Women's Crisis Centre says women are feeling more confident to report abuse. The crisis centre's figures show there were 994 sexual or domestic abuse reports in 2021, going up to 1,751 in 2022. 
The data, which comes directly from the crisis centre's offices in Fiji, includes emotional and physical abuse, rape, domestic violence and sexual harassment. Shamima Ali says since the crisis centre opened in 1984, there's been an increase in abuse being reported each year. She speaks with RNZ Pacific's Caleb Fotheringham. We already have high rates of violence against women and girls and children. And within that, I would say, from the crisis centre's point of view, that there might be some increase in incidents, but definitely uh, we would attribute it to higher rates of reporting. People are feeling a lot more confident to report. There are many more service providers, and police have somewhat improved their responses. Why do you think people are feeling more comfortable to report these instances? We do have uh, laws that are more conducive to women reporting the Crimes Act and the domestic violence legislation. Protection orders and so on have become less harder to come by. Uh, one can obtain it from various, from the police, and uh, you know it's 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 uh, a bit easier to obtain the protection orders and so on. That and uh, there's a lot more awareness uh, from groups like ours. Of course, we lead this work in Fiji, and there are faith-based organisations also, like the Anglican Church, is doing a lot of community awareness and work within their congregations and other churches also. The police are doing a lot of community policing within the community policing. They are doing a lot of awareness. So people are getting to know about the law. They're getting to know about the issues. They're getting to know that it's not acceptable. And and there are places that they can go to. We still, of course, have a very low reporting from the maritime areas from the Eastern Division. The National Survey of 2011 has indicated that the highest rates are around those areas, the remote areas uh, where there are not so many services. Do you think the majority of this data is from just people reporting it? So it's not necessarily from these instances actually increasing in number? There could be, but because we haven't done any comparative studies and so on, so we can't say whether it is increased. The second study is due very soon, 10 years later. But we would attribute it to higher rates of reporting plus some increase in incidents. Definitely uh, rape, you know, the, the issue of rape, uh, we are seeing new trends there, younger and younger perpetrators, teenage and 11-year-olds and so on. So that is a new trend that we are witnessing right now and the, and the rape of uh, younger children by younger children. So there could be an increase there. What more needs to be done in terms of more of this being reported and also just stopping this type of behaviour from taking place? Caleb, I just want to add also, though the numbers may seem high, this is just the tip of the iceberg that we are seeing. Violence against women and girls are the most underreported of crimes, you know, anywhere. We believe that we're just seeing about, you know, less than 10% of domestic violence cases. And whereas rape is concerned, we're estimating less than 5%. So a lot of work needs to be done. We have to, you know, be all on the same page. We have to recognize that there is one cause, and that is patriarchy, patriarchal systems, that, you know, gives rise to male privileges, inequalities, and so on. And we have to start addressing that. Many people have come on board, but others still look at it as a welfare issue. We still have a lot of uh, blaming the victim syndrome going on. It must be her fault. She must have done something to anger him. That it's, you know, a man's right to do that. So that, that all those is still there. Uh, you know, religion and culture being used to excuse men's bad behavior, terrible behavior towards 
women, girls and children. We all have to work through all of that. And that is why it's so important for faith-based organizations to come on board and actually really start looking at the perpetrators and why men do these things. We have to really sit down and come to the table about this. And a lot more awareness. There has to be a lot of improvement in how police respond to cases of violence against women, especially domestic violence and rape. So, you know, a whole lot of work to be done, but uh, the National Action Plan for the Prevention of All Forms of Violence Against Women, only the second in the world, I'm told, Australia being the first, uh, that we've spent five years on. And the first time with the last government, whereby civil society and all of governments, all of civil society, we got together, consultations were actually held for this one issue. And uh, we have a very good plan that has been drafted and it has been through the Solicitor General's office. It has to go through Cabinet. And uh, we were hoping that it would be launched this month. So that is a national action plan. It's very comprehensive. It has involved a lot of people, a lot of civil society, a lot of government ministries and so on. But it does you know, require a lot of uh, funding to be able to do that. But, you know, piece by piece, we can do that if we put that into action, you know, um, uh, targeting schools, you know, young people, young boys and girls targeting schools, targeting the traditional settings, the religious setting, uh, hospitals, you know, health services and so on. If we went through that, then I think, and police and so on, we will get somewhere with that. But we are waiting on the new government. In recent years, there's been growing reports of the movement and relocation of people affected by climate change. However, some intend to remain on the ancestral lands, described as voluntary immobility. A community in Sedua Island in Fiji have deliberately chosen to stay for cultural and spiritual reasons, even in the face of significant decline in health and livelihoods from climate change. Joining me is Merua Lesi Gi, a PhD candidate from the University of Queensland, who spent time in Sedua Island as part of her ongoing research into the phenomenon. Bula Mere, first of all, tell me about your study on voluntary immobility. So our, our study on voluntary mobility basically um, you know how the the climate of Earth is changing due to human activity, and it's causing you know devastating impacts on people and ecosystems that that people are now uh, putting in place a range of adaptation measures to respond to these impacts. And um, you know one such a very popular adaptation response is planned relocation, where people move away from the site of climate-related risks. However. Our, our study uh, to date, however, there's you know very few empirical studies that have investigated you know the diverse and context-specific reasons for for communities that are reluctant to relocate, and that's where our our project, our study, comes into into play. So this study that uh, that we've carried out, you know, the aim is to examine the the motivation behind people's decisions. Uh, to remain in locations at risk from climate change. Um, in most cases, uh, studies have always looked at people relocating. Uh, the focus has always been on people moving, but not uh, on people choosing uh, to stay. So, you know, immobility, this concept of immobility uh, is a diverse and complex phenomenon. So while immobile populations are originally viewed you know, as trapped, there is now a growing understanding of uh, the spectrum from trapped populations to voluntary immobility. 
Now, what is this voluntary immobility? What exactly is it? So from uh, our study, when, we, when we're talking about voluntary mobility, um, we, we look at it as the one, an informed, freely indicated preference to remain inside where there is or is expected to be high vulnerability to environmental risk. So why are these families, or why, why are some families choosing to stay behind despite the impacts of the climate crisis worsening? Uh, thank you. So, you know, we found in, uh, in this study, this, uh, this study was focused on this, uh, this island or this indigenous community in Fiji where, you know, coastal erosion and flooding severely damaged the village over the past two decades. But despite all this, they chose really to to stay. We found their decision based on this concept called Vanua. And Vanua is an indigenous Fijian word. It's a land-based concept. If you had to translate the word Vanua into English, it means a land, a region, or a spot. But in the Pacific and in Fiji, Vanua for us, it refers to more than just that land or that region. It refers to that whole interconnectedness of, uh, you know, the natural environment, the social bonds between people, our ways of being, our spirituality, and even, you know, our stewardship of place. And for an outsider, this may be a difficult process to understand. Uh, but then, you know, for us in the Pacific, Vanua binds binds us to to the land and this is one of the reasons why some of the families have chosen uh, to remain in place. What are you hoping to achieve with your study? Uh, You know the saying goes nothing about us without us. You know climate change adaptation policies and actions you know they must consider these voluntary immobility aspirations and, you know, avoid imposing adaptation measures without consent. Uh, in our case, in this Fiji case study, we, we, we feel that there needs to be a stronger focus placed on uh, the concept of Vanua in the climate change policies and adaptation in Fiji. And, you know, we found that voluntary mobility, it's a global phenomenon. It's not unique only to Fiji. In many cases, people prefer to adapt in place and protect at-risk areas. So we feel that policies should ensure that voluntary immobile population, those who, who wish to remain in place, you know, that they have access to uh, relevant information on the risks and even the potential consequences of uh, remaining in place. And they should also receive assistance in putting adaptation plans into action. And and we hope that, you know, to stay or relocate, we'd like to give this message out that to stay or relocate, you know, it should be a decision for the communities to make themselves. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Fafisa Tzile Lava, Manuele Vayasu.